In Matthew 13, Jesus was talking to his disciples by the shores of Galilee. And at that time, he explained that the kingdom of heaven is just like a mustard seed. Now, what was he talking about? In what way is the kingdom of heaven like a mustard seed? And what does that tell us about the work of the modern church? Those questions will be the focus of today's study. In the years immediately following Christ's resurrection, there were few places on the entire planet that were more violently opposed to Christianity and to Christians than the city of Rome, specifically under the various Caesars. Now, you remember some of the tales. One of the most villainous, terrible, evil, very bad, no good Caesars was named who? Starts with an N. Nero. Now, what did Nero do? Well, what didn't he do? Nero was terrible. Nero was wicked. Nero was as pagan as they came. He hated Christianity. He hated Christians. He viewed all of it as a cult. And when given an opportunity to destroy them or to attempt to destroy them, that's exactly what he did. In 64 AD, there was a fire. Fire broke out in the city of Rome. And Nero seized upon the opportunity to blame who? To blame the Christians. To blame the Christians. And as a result, there was a great persecution that took place in Rome against all Christians. Nero took some of these very Christians and burned them in his gardens to bring light at night during the evening. Others he sent into the circus Maximus to be devoured by wild beasts. Untold brutality, oppression, persecution came against the early church in the city of Rome by the Caesars. Now, with that being the case, it would be hard to expect to imagine Christianity surviving in the midst of that level of persecution. We talk about persecution in our own context, and maybe it exists. In fact, it undoubtedly does. And yet, this is something altogether different. This is the sort of persecution you would be shocked and surprised that anything could bloom or flower out of. And yet, despite the opposition in Rome, Despite the opposition in Israel and Jerusalem, for that matter, where all this was born, despite opposition everywhere across the globe, or at least the globe of the then age, Christianity not only managed to squeak by, not only managed to survive, but expanded tremendously during, in the midst of, in the heart of, this very persecution. It not only survived the persecution, but what's interesting is it pervaded the persecuting institutions, the nations themselves. The hostile nations against Christ and his church were the very ones, including Rome in the third century, that were transformed most readily, most readily at this time. A major turning point for the historians in our midst, a major turning point of the Roman Empire occurred after the apparent conversion of a guy named what? Anyone know the name? Constantine. This was a 313. He was converted apparently to the faith and he issued an edict, the Edict of Milan, and it legalized Christianity as if it needed to be legalized. It was legalized in 313, but it didn't stop there. In 380, there was another emperor, Emperor Theodosius I, and he issued the Edict of Thessalonia, which not only legalized Christianity, but it made it the official state religion. In 380 AD, not that long in the scope of things, in 380 AD, Christianity had gone from being oppressed to the degree that Christians were being burned in Nero's gardens to the point it was the state religion of Rome. In the scope of 6,000 years of recording history, that's a blink of an eye, and yet that's exactly what happened. Not in spite, some would say, of the persecution, but sometimes maybe even because of the persecution. The seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. 
So the first few short centuries, Christianity became a group, a ministry, a church of millions, and then by 380 AD, after starting out as something very small. At one point, the church, you could say, was limited to a handful of scared men in the upper room, cowering in the days thereafter Christ's crucifixion, but in time, it filled the entire globe. Now, before we get to verse 31, let me just suggest this. That's not the way that most religions work. We're talking about a faith that has grown exponentially, exponentially. It's over 2.38 billion Christians, or at least professing Christians, on the globe today. 2.38 billion with a B. Exponential growth. That's not the way most religions work. Let me ask you, have you ever driven by, you're going to Gulfport, and you drive by the, the shrine to a Zeus? Have you ever done that? How about Baal? Have you done that? Why not? Because <laughs> they're not there. <laughs> because no one, globally speaking, is worshiping Zeus or Baal per se. These are regarded as myths. Amun-Ra, all the Egyptian gods, these are regarded as mythology at best. These things are in the dustbin of history. Christianity is thriving. Why? What's the difference? Well, the difference is principally that Christianity is altogether different than those religions because Christianity is based on truth, and more to the point, it's based on the real divine presence and crucifixion and resurrection of God himself. In verse 31, we see this talk of a mustard seed. We see this talk of something small. Jesus is going to tell a small group that in time, what they're doing is going to grow, grow much larger than any of them could possibly imagine at that time. And the reason it grows is because it's true. And that's what we're going to see in our study of today's text. All right, let's look at verse 31. Then again, we'll just work our way through. There's only a few verses in this passage, but we'll work our way through the verse 33. All right, verse 31. Now, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. All right, before we talk about the mustard seeds and the fields and the like, who's Jesus talking to here? Sometimes when we study a text, we go, oh, that sounds great, but we don't remember who was he addressing. Well, at the start of chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus is sitting there somewhere, maybe around Capernaum, but he's somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, and people have gathered, and he goes out in a boat and talks to them and preaches to the multitudes who are gathered there on the shoreline. So that's what's going on at the start of Matthew 13. Now, as he talks to them, he talks to them in a series of different parables. If you look at the chapter, it's virtually all parables. He starts with the famous parable of the sower, which Pastor Fish taught about this past December. So he talks about the parable of the sower, then there's parables of wheat and tares and the like. And as he's sharing these parables, he's trying to explain to the multitudes gathered before him that the church itself and the gospel itself, that it will grow and that it will thrive, but it'll have to do so in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a world that would be opposed to it, in the midst of soil that, in many cases, gospel seeds would not bear the desired fruit. So he talks about the sower, he talks about the weed, talks about the tares, rocky soil, weeds, all these different things. And as he's doing so, the people who are sitting there on the beachside come to understand that the gospel will grow, will expand outward, maybe far outward. They got that out of this message, but they also saw that would be in the face of weeds and birds that would come and pick the gospel seeds up, so to speak, and any matter of opposition from the world around them. Now, the disciples who were with Jesus, who traveled with Jesus, 
who listened to Jesus, who ministered alongside Jesus, they saw most of this firsthand. They saw some gospel seeds bear good fruit where there was good soil. They saw some gospel seeds bear the good fruit where the soil was good, just as he had told them. And in some cases, whole households were converted to the faith. Households you might not expect, like the Philippian jailer. They saw these things, and yet at the same time as they saw people being converted, they also looked down around and realized, especially in Jerusalem, they realized that the ratio of wheat to tares was not in their favor. They saw the gospel doing amazing things, converting those hard-hearted people. And yet at the same time, they looked around, they realized numerically, numerically, there seems to be maybe even a lot more tares than there are wheat. So in Matthew 13, Christ's parables are being used to affirm that that's the case, to affirm the difficulty of the spread, and yet to suggest that the spread itself would be inevitable. And that's where we come to the parable of the mustard seed. In the mustard seed, Jesus makes that statement in verse 31, that the kingdom of heaven, it's like a mustard seed. Now, that's a fascinating turn of phrase because when you think about heaven, you don't think of something small. If we were to talk about the heavens, remember in their days, they had three levels of heaven. The first heaven was what? First heaven is what you can see up above. That's where the birds fly and the clouds are. That's the first heaven. What's the second heaven? Space, the stars, the constellations. So they looked above them, they saw the first heaven, which was vast in of itself, the clouds and birds and the like. Then they looked up and they saw the constellations. That's the second heaven. The third heaven, that's where God is. That's where God lives. Heaven in their mindset is something vast, something great, something that you can't even fathom, something infinite, which indeed is the picture we see elsewhere in God's word. And yet here, he says it's small, or he says it's like something small. So what is he talking about? What's the point of the parable? Why would he say that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is tiny? Well, let's look at verse 32 as he unpacks this. Verse 32, this mustard seed, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but, but when it grows, it's greater than the herbs and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, I have said before, I am a man of very few gifts. I'm not a horticulturist. I don't know a lot about mustard seeds and trees and plants. I know a lot about mustard. I got that one down. I have plenty of experience with the mustard. But the mustard seeds, I don't know. So what did I have to do? I had to Google it. I hope you do too. You want to see how big a mustard seed is? Well, we have a handy tool called Mr. Google. It'll tell you how big a mustard seed is. And it is very small. It's obviously a very small seed. Now, is it the smallest seed on the entire planet? No. If you look up, there's a orchid seeds, various varieties of orchids. They're no larger than a piece of dust. But that's not the point. He's not making a scientific statement here. What he's saying in using this parable and in talking about the mustard seed as a metaphor, he's using a common seed that everyone knew what it was. He's not referring some orchid seed they had never seen. He's using a common seed that they knew exactly what it was, that it came exactly to their mind, and he's saying the kingdom of God is like that. It's like a mustard seed. It's something small. Now, as we said a moment ago, that seems just counterintuitive when you think about how big the kingdom of God is, how big the kingdom of heaven is. It seems counterintuitive, and yet that's how we refer to it. So again, why? What's the point of this parable saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? Well, most commentators believe that Jesus, what he's doing here is he's referring to the way in which the church itself, as the kingdom of God here on earth, as the kingdom of heaven in our midst, he's referring to how the church itself would start very, very small, but grow, grow increasingly, grow expandingly, ultimately to fill the world in which it had been placed. Now, at that moment, at the moment in Matthew 13, the church such as it was, was very tiny. In fact, it wasn't even called the church. 
You have to go to Matthew 16 before Jesus ever uses the word church, before the ecclesia ever comes around. So the church itself doesn't even exist per se at this time. Three chapters later, he'll talk about it. But at this point, on the shoreline there, by the Sea of Galilee, outside of Capernaum, there is no church. There isn't a cross yet. There isn't an empty tomb. There's not a resurrection. There's no new covenant. There's no ascension. There's no Pentecost. None of that. All of it's imminent. None of it's here yet. All of it's just around the corner, but none of it was a present reality. So that's the context of Matthew 13. The church hadn't even been named yet, and all those really important events hadn't even yet occurred. So to the degree that the church was anything at that time, to the degree there were Christians at that time, the Christians were those followers of Christ who were largely right in front of him that very day. It was not a vast multitude. It was a multitude, but not a vast multitude. It was numerically very few. However, what Jesus is saying is that he looks out at this group who's sitting there. He's on the boat, they're on the shoreline, and he's talking to them like the way we're talking to this morning. He looks out and he encourages them. He says that the kingdom of heaven is not going to be limited to the size and scope of what you see right here. And indeed, as you look around this room, the kingdom of heaven is not limited to the size and scope of what we see in front of us. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God would be far greater that ultimately the church, which was in seedling form at this time, would take root or grow on the root of Christ to fill the entirety of the globe. Now, I said I'm not a horticulturist, but I, I do know again from Mr. Google that mustard trees have one interesting component that might help us to understand what's going on here. Mustard trees do not grow especially tall per se, maybe 20 some odd feet, give or take. What they're renowned for is the way they expand outward. If you look out there, we've got any number of trees that are very good at growing up, growing tall. But the mustard tree doesn't necessarily just grow tall per se. It grows out. Its branches extend. Its outreach is greater than most any other trees that it's placed upon. Plus, it's especially hardy. The mustard tree can face bad inclement weather and climate and all manner of different harsh elements while simultaneously growing and expanding its reach. So... These are one of the many reasons that he uses the mustard tree and the mustard seed to describe the church. The church will start small, very small, but it will grow. And when it grows, it will not just grow upwards, but it will grow outward and fill the area in which it has been planted. All right, let's look now at verse 33. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to add, augment his previous parables with one more parable. And this parable is very important if you want to understand the previous one, the mustard seed. So what parable is that? Well, let's look at verse 33. Verse 33. Now, another parable he spoke to them. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. You know, growth is not the same thing as transformation. Not the same thing. We want growth. We want to see the kingdom of God grow, right? The kingdom of God growing is good. We want our church to grow. Yay! Church growing is good. However, that's not the only thing we want. In fact, it's not even the most necessary thing we desire. The most necessary thing we desire, no matter how big a church is or isn't, is that it is transformed, and as it is transformed, it transforms the world or the community in which it has been placed. In the first parable, God talks about the growth of the kingdom, and that is good, and that is necessary, and that's essential, but then he immediately morphs into talking about leaven. Why? Because leaven is an agent of transformation. Leaven is an agent of transformation. When hid, as this woman does in verse 33, when hid into the dough itself, it changes, it permeates, it saturates the dough. It enables it to rise. 
And so this is what he sees here. His rubric here is not just church growth per se. There are a lot of churches and pastors and church planners and others out in the world around us who their primary rubric for success in ministry is the growth of the individual church. The metric, the rubric is growth, numbers and the like. Nickels and noses is sometimes how that's referred to. That's not what we see here in this parable. In this parable, we see that it's not simply a matter of how big the church, any church, a particular church gets. It's the degree to which it is transformed and then which it transforms others, the community in which it's placed. So that's what's going on here with leaven. Now, I said I'm not a horticulturist. I'm not a baker either, but I do know this much. Having watched others bake, I know this much, that sometimes in order to cause yeast, the dough to rise, that you'll take a piece of the mother dough or some yeast, something like that, in order to cause the actual dough itself to rise and to grow and to be edible and desirable for bread thereafter. So that sort of transformation is what's being referred to here. Something that leavens or transforms. He's saying that the kingdom of God is not simply to grow, but it's also be a catalyst for change and those that it impacts. Now, when Jesus is talking to those by the Sea of Galilee, we see in that group, if you can picture them in your mind's eye, gathered there along the sea, we see in them a microcosm of how that transformation would be affected. Because what did these individuals go out and do? Think of the disciples gathered around them. What did they go on to do? Well, here, when Jesus ministers to them, when he sows the word of life in their hearts, they were changed. But then they went out and changed the world. You understand this? This is an example in a microcosm of leaven. The very people that he was speaking to on the beachfront that day, the very people he was speaking to, that he was sowing the seeds of the gospel in their heart would go out thereafter and be agents of change that would affect the entirety of the globe to the point that all of these years later, 2,000 years later, 7,000 miles removed, we are links in a chain that was forged through them as begun by Christ. The message of Jesus Christ leavened their hearts and is indeed continuing to leaven the world. Now that's what we saw. Let's go back to Rome. That's what happened in Rome. That's what happened in the place that was least likely of any place on the entire globe of that age to be receptive to the gospel, especially during the the reign of Nero. That's exactly what happened there. As we said at the outset, Nero tried to exterminate every vestige of faith, every believer that he could find, and yet he was unable to stop the progress, the march, the drumbeat of the gospel in his empire. He was unable to stop it. It couldn't be stopped. As we said before, the famous quote is that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. He tried to kill and kill and kill some more. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church by which the church was growing. Even as he opposed it, it grew in spite of that opposition. And in time, in a short amount of time, it leavened, it filled, it pervaded, it permeated Rome to the point that ultimately one of his successors, Constantine, was apparently converted to Christianity, and then in 380, the Edict of Thessalonica we talked about, it became the state religion. The gospel that we're talking about here is more powerful than we sometimes think it is. You look at the ills of our society and your culture, and we despair, we go, oh oh me, oh my, what's going to happen with this election or that whatever? I don't know what's going to happen with this election or that election or whatever, but I do know if there's any hope for us, for our nation, for our country, for the globe around us, it's vested in this. This is the basis for which our nation has hope. This is the basis for which the world has hope to the degree to which the gospel is expounded from this text and shared into the ears and the hearts of a hurting world. That's the means by which the world will be converted and changed for the better. It starts small, though. It was small that day on the beach, there on the Sea of Galilee. The people were not that much more 
numeric than what we see in, in the room gathered here right now. It started small, but it grew tremendously. Now, with that said, as we look about at Christianity and the world around us, is all of it equally healthy? No, obviously not. Not everything that professes to be the church is of the church, okay? We've talked about this in other contexts. We've talked about the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. And the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, is not necessarily every expression of it that you see in the world around us. So not everything that would profess to be of Christ is actually of Christ, and some that are of Christ can still be impacted by sin and despair and, and even laziness and the like, or be infiltrated by worldly ills to the degree that their testimony is lessened. So that can and does happen. It's not to say that the kingdom of God is equally healthy in every place that it is manifested. And for every wheat that might exist, even in a local congregation, for every wheat that may exist, there may be tares as well. For every sheep, there may be wolves. That's going to be true until Jesus comes back. So not every expression is equally healthy. Sometimes birds alight in the branches of Christendom that are evil-minded. Sometimes false sons enter the church's pale with their own leavening effect. Now think about that for a moment. Leaven works both ways. Leaven works both ways. Leaven can be good. It can modify and change a church, a nation, a globe for the better. It can and should, and it does, as we've seen in today's text. But leaven is also used repeatedly throughout Scripture to identify that which is bad at times. There are influences outside in the world that if they come marching in here will harm us. Okay? So leaven can work both ways, and we must be on our guard against worldly leaven that mess up our witness and our faith and our testimony, while at the same time advancing and pushing out into the world a godly leaven that will cause a greater change in the community in which we have been placed. All right, as we... Uh it's only a couple of verses long, so here we are. We're at the end. Let me go ahead and close this morning. I'll give you one great example from Scripture where we see positive leavening taking place, where we see it very tangibly, what God is doing. In Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 5, you've got uh, Peter and, and the apostles and and they've grown up at the feet of Christ, across those three, three and a half years of Christ's ministry. They sat there, they learned, they observed. And then when he died, they freaked out. But when he was resurrected, their hope was renewed. And after he ascended into heaven, and after the Spirit was given, and after Pentecost and the like, Peter and the others were far stronger, more courageous than they had been previously. Well, in Acts chapter 5, they go to the temple to do what? Well, to do what you would hope and expect, to preach to share the gospel, and they do it in the heart of a place that is still opposed to them. So they go to the temple, they preach the gospel, and in Acts chapter 5, the high priests and the Jewish leaders at that time respond by taking Peter and the others and throwing them in jail, throwing them in jail, and, you know, lock it up and the like. Now, did they stay there? No, they did not. What happened? How did they get out? Anyone know? An angel. Right, an angel. Because by freeing them with an angel, it was God's way of saying, these are my people. By freeing them using inexplicable means, inexplicable means that demonstrated to the high priest and the others that you're not fighting against men, you're fighting against God. So God sends an angel to free them in Acts chapter 5, and what do they do next? Do they go off into the hills, they go hide, they run away, they, you know, they hightail it to go preach into some other context that will be more friendly? No, they go right back to the temple. They go right back to the very place in which they were arrested the first time. To do what? To preach, to preach and to teach and do the same thing they were doing before. Now, the high priest and the others, how did they respond to that? How did they like that? Well, they liked it about as much as you think they would like it. 
They woke up that morning, they you know, put on their priestly gear, you know, used their priestly soap, did all the things to get themselves ready for the day, drank their priestly coffee, and then they get word, they get a report that, guess what, the guys that you thought were in jail that you were going to deal with today, that you were going to bring down the hammer upon them, they're not in jail. They're not in jail. Where are they? Well, you won't believe this, but they're back in the temple. They're back in the temple. And the high priest knows they freak out. They're beside themselves at what has taken place. They're furious, and they demand that they be brought before them. In a short order, the men are brought before them. Peter and the others, they stand before a high priest and the other men. The high priest you know, has all the priestly indignation he can bring. He rolls up the sleeves of his robe. He stands before them, and he begins to rebuke them. And among his rebukes, he says this. The high priest says this to Peter and the others. He said, did we not, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, not to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, and look, and it's almost as if he says it's obvious, but he says, and look, you have filled the city with your doctrine. This is leavening, and the high priest knew it. What the high priest was saying was that not I'm opposed to what you're preaching, so cut it out. What he was saying is that I am threatened and the institution is threatened. The whole world is threatened by what you're saying and what you're saying is having the net effect of filling, saturating, permeating, transforming, leavening the whole of Jerusalem. You look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, to him that was bad news. Why? Because he had a vested interest in the status quo. He had a vested interest in the way things were. His heart had not been impacted by the gospel itself, and he liked things the way they were. So to him, the idea that the city was being leavened, filled, was bad. But to the apostles, can you imagine how cool it was to stand there and have him acknowledge to you that the very work you were committed to doing, the work you were doing, was indeed filling the city? Can you imagine how cool it would be to have the high priest look at you and say, stop it, because what you're doing is having an effect. I'm sure Peter in his heart of hearts said, amen. I can live with that. The apostles were watching transformation occur in real time, in real time. Before their very eyes, the community in which they lived was being changed, impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if it happened there, it can happen here too. And it can happen through us. If it happened there, it can happen here, it can happen in Gulfport, it happened through us. And because of that, our objective... Humanly speaking, our objective, it really is not filling our pews. If God should do that, that's great. But that's not the principal objective that we should have even if our pews were filled. That's thinking too small. The objective of the Church of Christ, the Bride of Christ, is not only to transform our own hearts, but to see that that transformation is worked outward into the very community and relationships in which we have been placed. Let's pray now for the grace to do so. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.